Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books on Israel Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Yaakov Yadgar, and today we are talking to Joyce Delsheim about her new book, which is titled Israel Has a Jewish Problem, Self-Determination as Self-Elimination. The book studies some of the surprising outcomes of the great Israeli experiment of reimagining and reconstructing Judaism, Jewishness, and the Jewish people as an ethno-national project focused on the state. Jostel Shaim, welcome and congratulations on the publication of your new book. Thank you very much. Let us uh, begin with the very motivation to write the book. Can you please tell us what brought you to embark on this project in the first place? Well, I think it's it's sometimes difficult to describe one's motivation to embark on a particular project. So, so as you know, I'm an anthropologist, a cultural anthropologist, and I'm primarily engaged in ethnographic research, which is research on the ground among people in their everyday lives. And so when you do ethnographic research, you spend a great deal of time with people. You hear their conversations around the dinner table, for example. You see what people are joking about and what bothers them. And I've been doing research in Israel for more than two decades. And yeah, I mean, this is actually the third book I've written about Israel. And so for a long time now, I had been hearing complaints from certain segments of the Israeli Jewish population about what they call religious impositions on their lives. And then in other segments of the population, I heard people worrying about being able to fulfill certain religious requirements that they understood as their responsibility. So on the one hand, you had the complaint about religious impositions, which made me wonder about secular impositions on the lives of other Jews in Israel. And ultimately, I started thinking about the extent to which Jews in Israel feel they are free to be Jewish as they see fit. Yes, Uh, and the book really brings uh, to life some of the fascinating, uh, I guess, conundrums that uh, emerge out of this. Uh, I guess the title of the book, and especially the subtitle, would be the parts of the book that would, uh, I'm sorry, most immediately catch the reader's attention. Uh, so what do you mean by Israel's Jewish identity problem and by self-determination as self-elimination? So actually, um, it's not J- Israel's Jewish identity problem, but it's Jewish problem. Um, which could certainly mean a number of things, and and I have to say that I left it open like this on purpose. Um, First, because the idea that Israel, the self-described Jewish state, would have a Jewish problem, a problem with Jews or a problem about being Jewish, seems quite ironic. We often think of Europe and the historical Jewish question or Jewish problem there which of course had to do with questions of citizenship and belonging. It had to do with Christian ideas about how others might live among them. 
But then the establishment of the modern state of Israel was supposed to bring about an end to to problems that Jews encountered under foreign rule. It was meant to allow not only for Jewish continuity, but also for Jewish flourishing. But this turns out to be more complicated than we might imagine. And this is where self-determination, national self-determination, as self-elimination comes in. When we talk about nationalism, scholars and activists have a tendency to focus on those people who are left out of the national collective, people who are marginalized, oppressed, or removed entirely. Um, and, And that actually makes a great deal of sense because that is, in fact, where nationalism's most devastating outcomes are felt. And in the case of Israel, this has been and continues to have devastating outcomes for Palestinians. But my question was, what, hap- what about national majorities, right? What happens to them? And, and this is what the book deals with. It looks at the people who are at the center of sovereign citizenship, and it makes an argument about how they are transformed, disciplined, and molded into a people who can serve state projects. And this kind of transformation necessarily involves certain kinds of homogenizing processes that involve eliminating certain ways of being Jewish. And so the first three chapters of the book lead up to this question, um, which I deal with in greatest detail in chapter four. Uh, now, uh, the book's structure itself is quite unique. You weave into your ethnographic work, analysis, and interpretation um, a, a set of uh, quotes from stories by Franz Kafka. You suggested, I guess, that the social, political, and cultural case, if you want, that you are studying is in effect a playing out of a Kafkaesque theme. Can you please explain this? Yeah, um, I, I have to say I very much enjoyed working Um, with Kafka. And uh, one of the fun things uh, about writing a book is, uh, is that you learn a lot along the way. I, I had never really studied much about Kafka before, but this gave me the opportunity not only to read more of his work, but also um, to read the way different scholars were interpreting his work. Um, so there are a number of different themes that I draw on from Kafka. And I, I really like the idea of using literature as theory. Um, so in general, it struck me early on in the research that many of the situations I encountered had this kind of Kafkaesque quality. And I should point out that Kafkaesque is, is not just a word in English. Certainly, um, it is a word that Israelis also use. Um, so... But, I noticed that there were a number of situations that had what seemed to me to be a rather Kafkaesque quality. So people, for example, wanted to get married because they're in love. And if they wanted their marriage to be officially recognized, so Jews in Israel have to have an Orthodox wedding. It has to be sanctioned by the state-sponsored rabbinical authority. But not everyone is quite so observant. Some people are more interested in the food they'll serve at their wedding than in the details of the ceremony. So they might go and hire a caterer before they meet with the rabbi, and then they find out that the food they plan to serve is not certified as kosher. And now they're in a quandary. 
because now maybe the rabbi won't perform the ceremony in a place where food that's not kosher is being served. So they rush about asking friends, maybe there's another rabbi who won't mind, or maybe there's some other way of getting around the rules. All of this and much, much more reminded me of some of Kafka's protagonists who seem to endlessly find themselves in impossible situations, like they're trapped in a sort of maze, but they never completely comprehend the contours of the maze. Sometimes they're dealing with what seem like arbitrary rules, and then just when they think they've figured them out, the rules change. So Kafka was writing about um, modernity itself, and many of his characters demonstrate that no matter which way we turn, and no matter how hard we try to be free, there are always forces that constrain us. And my book illustrates some of the ways that Jews in Israel turn and twist and run and struggle to make a living, to get married or divorced, to study sacred texts, and so on. And, and in the cases in the book, it comes down to the irony of struggling to be Jewish in a country that is described as Jewish. Exactly. Uh, brilliant, I guess. Um, only I can only recommend that the, uh, the, you know, the audience reads to understand the, the depth of the uh, relevance of Kafkaesque themes to uh, stories with, from within Israel. Um, I, I was quite also interested in uh, the methodology you employ in, the, uh, in your work. You build your stories around characters whose life stories, or at least elements of their life stories, capture those main themes of the book. Some of these, as you, you note early on, are not necessarily real people, but composites. Um, they are maybe also uh, composites of life stories. Can you please describe this methodology to the uninitiated? Um, so, as I said, I'm a cultural anthropologist, and primarily I do ethnographic research. And so, um, for folks who, who don't really know what this is, it, it might sometimes seem strange, because... Um, you don't get the numbers and the counting and the percentages and all these sorts of things. Um, but when I do ethnographic research, I'm on the ground and I'm talking to very many different people. And then when I go to write up the work, it's really, really important to me to protect people's identities. So sometimes a particular detail about a person will be altered. Their names will be changed um, unless there's some kind of very public figure um, whose name can't really be changed or, they, or whose identity can't really be hidden. So sometimes their names are changed and sometimes information gathered from different people might be combined. But it's always done in ways that remain true to the stories of the individual people and also reflect broader patterns. So very often a number of people will, will tell um, about very similar experiences and offer similar interpretations. And so that's how we uncover patterns and confirm information. So it's never just one person said this one thing, right? Someone will tell me something, and then I take that information to other people and ask them about it. And so on the one hand, it's about protecting people's identity. But it's also about the idea that individual people, some of whom might seem quite extraordinary, also always stand for something 
larger than themselves. And, and so, that, so that's what's going on there. Yes. Now, um, each of your chapters uh, captures, uh, I guess, a most fascinating conundrum about Israel's claim to Jewish identity as a modern nation state. You tell stories of people who self-identify as Jewish, as you described it earlier, who are nevertheless unable to live their life uh, or Jewish life in Israel, as well as stories of secular, maybe I would even say anti-Jewish Israelis who are forced to conduct their lives according to certain dictates of Jewish law. It would be impossible, obviously, to cover all of this here. And I was wondering whether you can pick your favorite story and retell it here. Well, first of all, thank you. I am so glad um, that you found the stories fascinating. Um, it's difficult, if not impossible, to choose uh, just one that, that would be my favorite. I mean, the book is filled with stories, and I really hope that readers will find them engaging. Um, one of my goals here was to write in a way that makes the book accessible to readers beyond the academy. So we've got these stories and we've got, we've got Kafka's work. I'm wondering if there was a particular story that stood out for you. Um, I guess the two stories that come to mind are, uh, I mean, obviously the uh, uh, married or the soon-to-be-married couple who's uh, trying to struggle with, I guess, an outcome of the state uh, uh, employing a monopoly through the rabbinite, which is then uh, exercising its, uh, I guess, discretion with not much of uh, checks and balances, uh, and then introducing this new requirement for kashrut, which is uh, a novelty, I would say, as far as I understand the law. Uh, but also the story of uh, those uh, secular Israelis, or specifically one secular Israeli whose uh, uh, preference to work during the Sabbath or Saturday is uh, unallowed, or it is not allowed because uh, he's identified as Jewish, while his co-workers who are not identified as Jewish can work and make uh, the, uh, the bigger wage that comes with working in the weekend. Uh, but it's, I guess, uh, I guess these are only two stories of uh, out of uh, you know a vast variety of uh, many interesting themes. Um, I. I I can also assume that your audience will be, I mean, your readers will be most uh, attracted to the GOAT surveillance, if you want to say something about this. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll, I'll tell you the GOAT surveillance story. I mean, obviously, I mentioned earlier, and you just mentioned um, the issue about Jewish Israelis, the more secular sort of Jewish Israelis um, having trouble with getting married and how um, and how they try to get around the rules and and, and what some people might not know is that there's even a vibrant tourist um, trade with, with nearby Cyprus because some people actually choose to leave the country to get married rather than having to deal with the state-sponsored rabbinate. And, and of course, there's also the case of, um, of some much more observant Jews who, who sometimes say the conditions for living life according to the Torah might be better outside of Israel right? That they might be more free to be Jewish according to their traditions in New York. And all of that strikes me as so ironic. Um, but here's, here's the story you asked for um, about, about the struggle to be Jewish, about how the struggle to be Jewish in Israel um, can interfere with one's ability to make a living. And so it's got, um, so, okay. So one summer, a few years ago, I spent some time at the home of an Israeli goat farmer. And early one Saturday morning, Shabbat, um, I was drinking my coffee, and the farmer appeared in the kitchen 
in clean, fresh clothes. He didn't appear to be working. And that was very strange. He was always up at the crack of dawn and he worked until sundown. So when I first saw him that morning, I started teasing him. What's this? Did I actually wake up before you today? Did you oversleep? I asked him. Well, he said, since I can't milk the goats on Saturday, on Shabbat, I might as well get a little sleep. You can't milk the goats on Saturday? I wondered who would stop him. And so I knew his wife didn't like it that he worked so many hours and seven days a week. And so I thought maybe she had something to do with it. But I asked him why he couldn't milk his goats. And he said, if I did, the milk would not be kosher. And of course, if it wasn't kosher, it couldn't be sold and certainly not in most places um, in Israel. But why wouldn't it be kosher, right? So the farmer explained that according to the rules of the state-sponsored rabbinate, um, which is the authority that makes such determinations, if a Jew milked his goats or cows on the Sabbath, that was a desecration of the Sabbath, and the milk would not be kosher. Well, that struck me as very strange, and, and I know other people find it strange too. Um, there are also rules about caring for animals regardless of the Sabbath, and, and goats and cows have to be milked, otherwise they start to suffer in pain. Also, I knew something about milking one's herd because, oh, about 20 years earlier, I had worked on a dairy farm in Israel myself, and Jews had always milked the cows on Saturday. And milk was definitely kosher. It was sold to Tnuva. And so apparently something had changed. And so one of the interesting things here is that something had changed. And that sort of takes me back to that Kafkaesque situation about thinking you know the rules and then the rules changing. But I thought, what if a farm was too small to employ non-Jewish laborers? What did they do when there weren't any Palestinians or other foreign or foreign laborers available? On this particular um, goat farm, the, the farmer had Palestinian laborers who came um, from the West Bank and, and worked for him. But, but what if there weren't other workers available? So what, then the milk wouldn't be kosher? The farmer started to lose his patience with me when I asked him these questions. And he said, don't ask me about halacha, right? Because like so many other Israeli Jews, he thought that the rules were arbitrary and that they were primarily aimed at creating jobs and generating money for the rabbinate. I spoke to a kibbutz dairy farmer who told me it wasn't true that a Jew could not milk cows or goats on Shabbat. A Jew was simply prohibited from turning on electricity. So he could milk the cows, but he couldn't press the button on the electric milking machines. Anyway, um, halakha, which, as you know, is sometimes translated as Jewish law, is open to numerous interpretations. But never mind why Jews were prohibited from milking their herds on the Sabbath, and never mind the source of this ruling or the rabbis who would be likely to disagree. Never mind that, it, that we could probably produce um, a commandment that Jews must milk their goats or cows every day, including the Sabbath. My question was how the rabbinate could possibly know. Surely they would not send an inspector out on a Saturday to check. 
they could not possibly um, expect a member of their own staff to travel on Shabbat, right? That would defeat the whole purpose. Aha, the farmer laughed at me. Now there are cameras. Cameras, I said. Yes, there's a video camera in the milking parlor. So it turned out that he had a surveillance camera and he showed me the, the website so, so I could also watch the Saturday milking, which led me to wonder why the farmer had the password for the camera that surveilled him. And it turned out that not only did he have to be surveilled, he had to purchase and install the camera. Um, and so, you know, these days we talk a lot about surveillance society, right? Um, but goat surveillance, <laughs> it seems a little extreme. Anyway, it turns out that the goats are milked, um, but the Palestinian laborers do the work on Saturday. In, on other farms, I've seen other foreign workers do, the, do that work. And so this way, the milk is kosher, and the farmer keeps the Sabbath day of rest. Or at least it appears that he keeps the Sabbath day of rest, because there are no cameras on his tractor, so they don't see him driving around to bring food to some of the other animals um, on his farm. But we might say he is kept Jewish. Um, and the other story that you mentioned a minute ago um, was about this, this young man who'd been milking cows on a dairy farm to save him enough money to pay for college, right? And he was infuriated by this Sabbath rule. He wanted to work on Saturday and make time and a half for overtime or, or whatever it was. And, and so this, this young man tells his employer, okay, so I'm not Jewish. And he proceeds to pronounce the words of Muslim conversion, which, you know, is, is really quite ironic. And so he says there is only one God and he is Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And, and his employer just laughs at him. You don't get to decide. These issues are determined by the Ministry of the Interior, and you are a Jew, whether you like it or not. So um, there are your stories. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, I was wondering also if you could um, give us an example of how you draw the larger conclusions from these stories. If we just uh, focus on, for a moment on the goat surveillance, goat surveillance story, I'm sorry. Um, one could easily argue or maybe mis misinterpret this whole story as to have only to do with the modernity or the Kafkaesque uh, uh, nature of modernity, that Judaism and Jewishness are in a sense only a byproduct of this uh, uh, technological ability to surveillance and uh, uh, um, uh, the state's aim at, in a sense, uh, uh, managing its population. Is there a uniquely Jewish element in this other than the employment of this technology to a certain interpretation of halacha? Um, so, so that's lovely. Um, I'm, I'm glad that, that you bring this up um, because one of the reasons that the stories are there is because they are also, of course, open to a variety of interpretations um, by readers. And, and that's part of, that, I think, is part of the beauty um, of, of using um, stories in this way. But um, I think that, you know, you can talk about modernity and technology and surveillance and so forth. Um, but 
from my point of view, this had to do precisely with keeping people Jewish, right? Um, with certain ideas of not Israeli, right, but Jewish, because a state that is defined as a Jewish state has to determine what being Jewish will mean. And so in that particular example, we see one of the ways that the requirement to be Jewish for the state can interfere with people's everyday lives, their ability to make a living, to produce food. Um, this particular farmer absolutely felt himself to be very Jewish indeed, and, and he resents the interference not only in his livelihood, but he resents being told that he is somehow not being a good Jew or not being Jewish enough or that this particular representative of the state has a better idea of what it means to be Jewish than, than he does, right? Um, and so, so the question about um, what this specifically has to do with Jewishness comes down to the, the much broader theme um, that's going on in the book, and, and that has to do with the way in which um, modern categories of identity are generally separated, but then are also um, conflated, specifically in the figure of the Jew. And those categories are religion and nation, right? Um, where being a Jewish nation meant that the Jews could claim the right to, um, to sovereignty, claim the right to self-determination. But at the same time, it meant that something that we normally consider as sort of separate from national identity, right? You can be a British Jew, you can be a Christian Brit, you can be an American Hindu. Um, but in the case of, of Israel, this all becomes conflated. And, um, and so the state becomes involved in determining what it means to be Jewish. And, and those determinations um, can, can really become intimately intertwined in people's everyday lives. And so that's why I thought that particular story uh, was, was quite revealing. Yeah, I think uh, you're paraphrasing with force uh, Latour's uh, uh, title, We Have Never Been Modern. Um, but as you as you already noted, sovereignty is is obviously a major or the major concept of uh, of the book uh, or the, the concept over uh, arching the whole book. Um, and chapter three specifically is uh, most immediately concerned with the matter. Intriguingly, you title it "The False Promises of Sovereignty." I think you've already alluded to this, but maybe. Um, you can uh, spell out more specifically what was the promise of sovereignty in the at least the Zionist mindset, and why do you judge it as uh, false or as having failed? Yeah. Um, so, so I'm thinking here about popular sovereignty, right? Um, the idea of a collective establishing their own state which bears the promise of a government by the people and for the people. Um, and, and I point out in, in the beginning, in, in the introduction to the book, that this idea of by the people and for the people is something of a myth. Um, and instead, we might turn that around and see that, in fact, the people or a people 
are required in order that there be a nation state. Um, so, so in the introduction, I, I use the metaphor of um, passengers existing for the state, for, uh, for the sake of the ship, and the ship in this case is the state. And, and so people have to feel in some way like they have control or influence over the direction of that ship, right? That, that is so foundational to popular sovereignty. Um, in, in the case of the, the Jews, the idea was that um, the state of Israel would be established so that Jews could flourish as Jews, even though it's never entirely clear what as Jews will mean. But, but people need to feel like they have some control or influence over the direction that things will take, um, over the direction that ship, if you will, will sail. But sometimes it seems like the ship has been set out on a course, and it's not clear if the people, the sovereign citizens, are involved in steering that ship or the extent to which they can be involved in steering that ship. So in Chapter 3, one of the things we see is that some people might actually end up undermining some of their own stated ideals. Um, but, but in chapter three, there's also something else that I deal with that, that I think is another important point. Um, and, and that is, you know, often when scholars, activists, or everyday Israelis talk about some of the conundrums, some of these stories that we've been telling here, um, and that I describe in the book. So, so they speak of this in terms of what they call a religious secular divide, right? Um, whether or not Israel is a secular state or if it's in the process of secularizing, um, it, it's a battle between the secular and the religious and, and all of that. Um, and, and I suggest that that analysis is, is insufficient and that, what we see going on there has much deeper roots in the very categories through which we understand our modern lives, which we just spoke about a minute ago. Um, but so chapter three also demonstrates one of the ways in which uh, this analysis is insufficient by focusing on a conflict between groups of observant Jews. So you might say it's a religious versus religious conflict and ultimately has to do um, with who will have the power to determine what counts as as being Jewish? If we move on uh, uh, without covering the whole book, uh, chapter five asks, uh, I guess, uh, a provocative question. If we want uh, to call it thus, uh, you ask, "Is Israel a Christian state?" Can you please explain the question? It's a great question, right? Um, it is. I mean, uh, I mean, people talk about Israel as a Jewish state, right? Um, a democratic state. And sometimes they ask whether it can be Jewish and democratic. And people discuss whether it's a secular state or if it's a theocracy. Um, but, but so here I raise a different question. And again, through the process of ethnography, the question doesn't come from me. It comes from the field, right? So the chapter opens with um, a man who was talking to me about the foundations of Zionism. Um, he started telling me about Theodore Herzl. Um, who's often thought of as the founding father of political Zionism. And this particular man was telling me that Herzl wanted to convert his own children to Christianity. And I had never heard that before. Um, 
and, and certainly that's not a story that most Israeli school children hear. They learn that Herzl was a visionary who imagined a Jewish state and was convinced that people could make that vision come true, right? Um, so, so it's kind of an empowering story. But this man um, who was talking to me, along with other people that I interviewed, was suggesting that the foundations of modern political Zionism were not Jewish at all, that Zionism was foundationally Christian. So I started wondering what that might mean. And so one of the things I do is I engage with some of the literature um, on, on what might be called the Christian modern. This is Webb Keen's work. And, and it's the idea that Western modernity is hegemonically Christian. Um, and, and that that's because certain modern ideas, ideas about progress and ideas about individual choice and agency are understood to be founded in Protestant theology. So, so what I do in that chapter is I look closely at the rhetoric of a particular member of the Israeli parliament, a feminist who talks about the recent controversy over bringing more observant Jews, people that are called ultra-Orthodox, um, into Israeli universities. And I look at how that politician talks about freedom in ways that seem to contradict the values of the very community she says she cares about. She's worried about gender segregation and the rights of women, but also insists that she is on the side of the ultra-Orthodox. She wants them to be free to study whatever they want. Um, and when I look closely at her rhetoric, even though it, this is not about this particular politician, it's about broader patterns, but looking closely at how she discusses this issue, I think we can see certain elements of Christian doctrine. So Christian doctrine reads the Jews into history as part of the past, backward, primitive, incapable of understanding their own scripture. But it also imagines Jews as a link in the chain that leads toward Christian scriptures and Christian salvation. And this is the model of progress on which modernity itself is based at least according to certain scholars, Talal Assad and Webb Keen, who I already mentioned, and, and a number of others. So it's a model of progress on which modernity is based, um, in which super, superseding previous eras and, and improving upon them, right? Christian supersessionism. And so the Zionist idea itself is founded on that same moral narrative of human liberation based in self-transformation and intending specifically to educate what, what we call a new Jew, right? This was very foundational to, to Zionist ideology, um, to Zionist political ideology, the one that became the ideology of the state. Um, and so I think that the feminist politician in chapter five emphasizes precisely this in her argument for continuing this process of replacing the traditional Jew with a kind of new and improved version. So, so that's what's going on in that chapter. It's fascinating. Um, maybe I can uh, draw you, uh, as, uh, in, you know, in concluding this talk, uh, somewhat outside of the immediate concern of the book, and 
and ask if uh, this uh, ethnographic work, this uh, uh, empirical research, brought you also to some normative conclusions that you may want uh, to share with us. Uh, if Israel and the political Zionist um, experiment at redefining Judaism in a modern and you know Christian uh, bed, I would say. Uh, is failing exactly in its inability to account for its own Jewishness. Did you come up with ideas of uh, alternative frameworks for understanding Jewish polity that uh, might be a solution? I'm a cultural anthropologist, and I don't really see it as my job to come up with other solutions or other ideas. I, I see my job um, as... Raising certain questions that that arise from the field, um, posing interesting juxtapositions to allow other people to think about things in ways that they might not have thought about them before. Um, but certainly, there are people on the ground um, in Israel, Palestine, and both outside who have thought of many other ways that um, that the country could be. Um, reorganized that that might make things a little bit different um, I mean even though I raise the question of whether or not Israel is a Christian state I don't exactly answer it right because at least partially it depends on on what you think that means but but if you thought that um, that this analysis, um, means that Israel is, is foundationally Christian. I mean, for me, one of the interesting things would be to say, um, what does that mean for other places, right? Um, is Egypt a Christian state, right? Is it a Christian state with a with with a Muslim majority or with a where where Islam is the state religion? Um, and 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 what about India, right? With, with all that's going on there now with um, with the with their Hindu nationalism and so forth, and so um, so it, it sort of got me thinking about other comparative cases. I would say, yeah, but I think you might have an answer in your book. I, I think uh, I think we're asking very similar questions, and we are uh, also choosing a very similar path of not answering it because <laughs> of, I think for. Uh, <laughs> if you ask me, the answer must be a collective effort of rethinking. It could not be an individual uh, yeah. uh, dictate or you know a recipe of some kind. Yeah. Justin Shem, thank you so much for this, and uh, again, congratulations on the publication of the book. Uh, much to be uh, appreciated and enjoyed. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for reading the book, and um, I've enjoyed our conversation very much. 